If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash beautifulhumans to become a Patreon. Welcome back, beautiful humans! (laughs) Can that please be it? Like, for real. (laughs) That needs to be it. Like, seriously, that's the intro right there. Because we're all crazy from being inside. Exactly. What's up? That's the most unique entry we've ever had to our I show. So. Besides our um, <laughs> besides our New Year's post where I got to uh, yes. scream Happy New Year. <laughs> yes, you made me <laughs> scream into the mic. Ah, uh, what's up? How are you? Oh my goodness! <laughs> I really feel like life for me ain't been no crystal stare. If I can just label <laughs> Langston Hughes right now, uh. that's how I've been feeling. With all of this COVID-19 coronavirus stuff, but I am in much better spirits today, right now, in this moment. I won't say that I was in better spirits earlier, but yeah, I'm I'm safe and I'm surviving. How about that? That's fair, right? <laughs> uh, you know, recording podcasts helps. Yeah. I, I missed you, Aaron. It's I missed you while. too. I didn't I'm, realize I'm, how I'm long too. it had been. I know. I know. He won't say anything. Hi, Alan. Um, <laughs> Alan, uh, a pretty easy podcast. <laughs> dude, I think you're delirious straight up right now. <laughs> Get me out of the house, people. Please. Seriously, though. So, like, let's before, because we pre recorded our episode, but we wanted to check in because we have not talked since this whole the world shifted and have has I what happened <laughs> like it's just a cluster bomb I'll say that <laughs> oh seriously just really changed for everybody and you know and it's so interesting too because you know I always I feel like oh complaining and just also just being grateful at the same time because there's a lot of stuff going on and people around us that are not um, making it through this current moment and so um you know it's it's really sad at the same time all of our lives are shifting together and this is just oh something that i didn't imagine for my lifetime i don't know i know seriously but is this something that we could have planned for i don't know i don't i was trying to think about that the other day i was uh, because there's nothing that anyone would have had in any sign of any sort of like emergency preparedness 
plan, right? <laughs> to prepare for a global pandemic where you had to stay away from people. Um, you know, like it's awful to think about. And then I was like, what would life be like if this had to be long-term, you know, how would life change? What would that look like? And it actually was really scared me, you know, <laughs> to not, um, you know, there's certain things that I could do without, but just to not be able to, to go see people or talk, talk to people and yeah. being at risk if you, if you did, you know, um, I don't know. Just I feel like weird. this definitely is the sci-fi show, you know, and people have said it. So this isn't a novel thought, but Black Mirror, you know. I saw a meme on that the other day. And it was like, this is the worst episode of Black Mirror ever. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's like, if you watch Black Mirror, any one of the seasons, you know that show can get pretty wild. And it's like, no, we're, li we're definitely living this here. I love sci-fi. I love Black Mirror. I'm not caught up with all five seasons, but I'm probably got to like three and a half. They're intense. Yeah, we're definitely <laughs> living this. They're they're gonna turn season six into the coronavirus. It will season, be something. I'm sure. <sighs> yeah. I, I also saw this thing too, and, and it was talking about climate change and how to how we would change all of that. And there's like there's no way you could stop people from doing X, Y, and Z in order to do and and it was like, well, here's a virus to show you how mm -hmm. you're able to do that. And it's hard, yeah. but it's possible if if you <laughs> it's possible right yeah uh, all of our um, mo's are changing at the same time there's aos happening you know there's an mm -hmm. abolishing of <laughs> like no one wants to shake hands i went to the store the other day because i needed to get groceries and the person who was checking me out um very nice woman we both were very vigilant right i had my wipes that i brought and i wiped down the cart I had cash and I pulled out this cash. And at that moment I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why do you have this cash? So here I am with the wipes in my hand. I'm wiping down the cash. So she doesn't have <laughs> oh. And then, you know, she has her sanitizer. She also makes a comment about me having my wipes. And she's talking to me about her being like very vigilant too. And then as we exchange, she touches my hand. And it's just that moment of, <laughs> oh my gosh i can't yeah i didn't even touch a cart when i went grocery shopping i made kristen go with me and i said we're taking reusable bags and we will just touch our stuff that we're gonna take and leave and it's just ah uh, i don't know it's smart yeah wipes are smart too but it's yeah everything shifts and to analyze that from a behavioral perspective I don't know. It's and I feel like we've been met with this crossroads because our field specifically has and with others, too. But I'm just thinking the unique things that we're trying to to deal with, you know, providing services, continuum of care, all of those things. And, um, you know, we have it's a, it's kind of this choice point of we can either act in this compassionate way or we can choose the other direction and we can be combative and critical and um and I've seen that. I've seen that happen. Um, a lot of conferences were being canceled and just mm -hmm. people were being nasty. And um, and it's unfortunate because that doesn't help anybody. Like, I understand holding people to standards and, and things like that. But in in this case, like, I just, I don't, I wouldn't en envy anybody who has to make a difficult decision. And the responses that you get can either uplift people and help or they can just serve to harm and pull people down, you know. Yeah, there are so many decisions that have been made over the past few weeks, and 
If you're in any of the Facebook groups, you know what some of those decisions were and, you know, people that were considering mitigating risk and determining what to do moving forward and what's essential versus, you know, what's critical or I forget the other terminology that we use, but um, it's, it's been a lot of decisions that have had to be made. A lot of people that have been affected by the decisions that we've had to make. So, yeah, it's a lot. And But it, like you said, the way that we make these decisions really, mm-hmm. really can at least help in this moment. I feel like as a, a larger society, for the most part, we're offering empathy in a way that you don't typically see, um, right? And it's just like... It's good to at least see and, and hear people say, like, it's okay to not be productive during this time. It's okay, you. you know, trust. Right. You know, you know it's, it's okay to, to be sad. It's okay to grieve things that have ended and, you know, you you cannot go to your graduation. You can't go to your prom. Right. You can't right. go see your friends and things like that. And so just, you know, I... I hope during this time that while tensions are high and we're all trying to make decisions that are best for us, that we can continue that empathy that we show, the love that we can uh, show towards one another. I definitely think in terms of some of the hard decisions that I've had to make, I've received a lot of empathy responses that I've been very grateful for. Yeah. So, yeah. That's awesome. But today is, Aaron. March 31st, we're recording, and today is also Trans Visibility Day. Yes, it is. Yeah. So, um, you know, this day is a day that we are lifting up our trans family and reminding everyone that they deserve a right to live. And we've talked about it on this show before about the violence that the trans community experience. And so on to this, on this day, March 31st, um, you know, I want to say that I am here for all of my trans family. I will stand (laughs) with you. Um, And yeah, Erin, did you want to say anything about trans visibility day? I don't know. Yeah, of course I did. Um, (laughs) Yes. It's right. Well, it's hard. I'm like, I need a calendar all all these different days. Um, Because honestly, like I lost track of of that. And um, I don't know, I think this day in particular, obviously has personal meaning to me. But um, I think oftentimes, you know, we don't we talk about visibility. I think that word is really important. Um, And in whatever way that you want to frame that word visibility for me um i chose to frame that as like this authentic um you know view and that i can see myself um for for whatever um authentic unique i think i said authentic unique and beautiful um and it's taken a long time to get to that so i think it's not just like making sure that you make trans rights visible and and acknowledged but it's also i think for me it's just acknowledging and making myself visible um just Mm -hmm. for me you know um i don't know it's it's challenging i I said i was gonna take some data just to see how many like microaggressions i come across whether it's intentional or not um how many per day uh and i think it's those things that you know you're talking about violence it's what people we talk about this all the time define violence 
And you helped me understand that, that it's not aggression necessarily. It's not physical acts of violence, but it's psychological, it's um, environmental. It's all of these things that, um, you know, that, that people may not even realize that they're doing. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, it's an important day for me. There's lots of important days too, but, um, yeah, but yeah, this day is also another day. It is. But before we do that, I I, I do want to talk about some policy that came down Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's right. This week, um, and and we talk about accomplice behavior and and what's going to be necessary for us to you know continue is to one be aware of the things that are happening in our own backyard. Idaho this week, um, their Republican governor um, decided to sign um, in legislation that prohibits trans folks from changing their sex listed on their birth certificates and another that bans uh, transgender girls and women from competing in women's sports. And I don't know what more I want to say about this because it's already passed, but (sighs) this is, you know, just some of the things that makes you just like, you know, like you get upset all over again. And, um, and I guess it's just a reminder to the people listening that, look, as as much as, you know, we can talk about certain things, these rules, these bills, these policies are still being enacted around us. And it's going to require more. It's going to require more than us to just start recognizing pronouns. It's, we We got Thank work you. to do. Yeah, the, I often it's a, a frequent message that uh, whether it's said with these exact words or but it's more of the attention, but it's people saying, yes, like, look at all this progress. It's great. And then I want to just like print out stories of this and this and this and this and this. And I'm like, yes, look at all this progress. Fantastic. You know? And there's a part of me that's like, wow, that sounds ungrateful. But then there's a part of me that's like, no, that that's, (laughs) that's a lack of perspective on their end. I know. And it's like this conflict and battle, um, you know, that, that, that I go through where I don't know, it's really challenging. Um, you know, it's not just like you said, it's not just about pronouns. It's not just about bathrooms. It's about um, the stress that one undergoes, uh, you know, when they have to live under these kind of laws and legislation. So Yeah. And, and um, I was, you know, I, I said it before, the Asada Shakur chant that really always resonates with me um, is that Actually, it's not the chant, but just the saying that we're not free until we're all free. Like, I don't care how much progress has been made. If we still got these, you know, these pieces of legislation that are being enacted in 2020, we got problems. I'm I'm, I'm thankful for us to not, you know, this world not to look the same, but that's evolution. It's not supposed to look the same. Yeah, there should have been some progress. So kudos to us, pat on the back, but we still got work to do. Um, so yeah, that is, yeah. Okay. Today is also Cesar Chavez day. Um, and so for those who don't know about Cesar Chavez, um, he is a civil rights activist. He was, you know, really prevalent in the farm workers movement. He is part of the Chicano movement. Uh, one of the things I want to mention about that where I am not part of the Chicano um, population or, you know, and that word was considered a word that was derogatory at some point. I take 
the guidance from my fellow Chicano um, family who have reclaimed that word, who want to be titled as that word. And so I use that word in recognition of them and, you know, the work that they have done. And so Cesar Chavez is just, you know, some person is a, is a, guy who did a, a lot of work. And um, if you are part of the nonviolent movement, you learned something from his work while he, you know, was working within the, the farm workers um, movement. And I want to share a quote um, that really resonates with me as a behavior analyst from Cesar Chavez. He says, um, you cannot un- educate the person who has learned to read. Actually, let me, it starts some, it starts a different way. It actually starts with, um, once social change begins, it cannot be reversed. You cannot uneducate the person who has learned to read. You cannot humiliate the person who feels pride. You cannot oppress the people who are not afraid anymore. We have seen the future and the future is ours. And I just want to say with that quote, like obviously that quote in itself is powerful. Um, but then it also reminds me, of behavior analytic principles and it but it also invokes or evokes um some self-accountability and reflection for ourselves and it reminds me of the misnomers that we often hear in the social justice movement which is you must unlearn dot 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 you there must be an unlearning of all the terrible things that you learned about this group of people or that you learned about your people um and we know you know unless we have neurological damage or tangles in our brains that that's likely not true it's not going to happen and i think that when we can recognize that um we can recognize that we um recall terrible things that we learned about each other without effort right then we allow for ourselves to show up in honesty and you know, being genuine and, and that also makes room for our own behavioral change and we don't get stagnant. We, we don't think that there's a terminal goal present that I learned how to say someone's pronouns and that's all the work that I need to do. But this quote to me speaks to, you know, allowing ourselves to be, um, to remember that we shouldn't be put on errors or there's no hierarchy of learning here. There's no terminal goal. There's no good stewardship. There's no uh, terminal accomplice behavior. There's no, this is what the best activist looks like, but we all know that we have our own work to do. And so if I, if I know as a person that I'll never get rid of this stuff or I can't get rid of this stuff, then I can stay focused on myself. I can stay focused on my own work. I can stay accountable to that knowing that I'm not perfect and I'm going to continue to work and it's going to be ever ceasing. Um, and so, yeah, so that's what I appreciate about uh, Cesar Chavez, uh, his work. And today is his day that people recognize his work in the Chicano movement. And so, yeah, I thank, thank him for being a, a leader that we all can look to. I love that quote. Yeah. I love it. I think that's really important. And the part about you cannot uneducate the person who has learned to read. It's part of your learning history. Mm-hmm. You can't just forget that it happened, right? Unless, like you said, there's neurological damage of some sort, you know, that is that is a part of you. So yep. um, can I write that down as another one of your rants? Yep. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Sit here in awe of you when you do that. I'm just like, yeah. <laughs> Thanks I for love it. Me rant, people. But all right, <laughs> are we ready to roll into this show? Yeah, we had a fun time recording this. I hope you all enjoy it too. 
guys. So today is really exciting. Per usual, every show is exciting. What do you think, Aaron? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. But today we have Marlisha Bell. I first met Marlisha at ABAI in 2018, was that? Yes. And Marlisha, being the rock star that she is, just really wowed me with her presentation. And I know that was it was really important for me to see um, someone like Marlisha doing research-based work in our field. And she also looks like me. And so I felt seen and I just felt really proud. Um, so, you know, we asked Marlisha to come on the show tonight to give some of her, you know, expertise and magic that she possesses and just her smarts and ingenuity. And tonight she's going to be talking with us about pyramidal training. So she's going to tell us about using behavior analytic principles to teach Latinx families. Hi, Marlisha. Hello. I'm really happy to be here. We are super excited to have you. Yeah, I'm fangirling a little bit. I'm not going to lie. I listen to your podcast while I'm working out. So <laughs> I read that. I read that in your bio. You were, you said you were working out. And I don't know, Denisha, if you continue to work out, but I was like, I just started working out again. I was like, oh, something in common we have all got. But I wanted to ask you, like, what what kind of what do you do when you work out? That was one thing I wanted to know. Well, um, before uh, the quarantine, I was going to the gym pretty regularly, um, and I do some steps, I do some high-intensity stuff, but I also fell into some boxing accidentally, so I bought a Groupon, you know, being the student trying to save money, and I brought a Groupon thinking it's going to be, oh, like a chill boxing class. No, I showed up, there's like a ring in the center, um, and I ended up loving it. So I actually go to a, like a legit uh, boxing studio. Shut up. That's so cool. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's a funny story, but yeah, I walked in and I was like, oh Lord, in my floral pants and like all of these men, you know, like legit boxing. But cool. Hey, wait like a group on because you never probably would have done that. <laughs> I would imagine. With a <laughs> way to be the frugal student. Awesome. Yes. So you hear that. Don't mess with you, Marlisha. Now I miss the days that I used to, I used to box as well because I got it on like a Groupon. <laughs> Those days. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> yeah, when I was a grad student, I, right. I was definitely boxing. I was taking um, mixed martial arts, the MMA classes. So it's yeah. great. So common. So cool. cool, Marlisha. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I want to hear more about the boxing. But I'm sure everybody else wants to hear more like professional and personal stuff too. Yeah. So um, I am currently a doctoral candidate at the University of South Florida. Um, but I'm originally from Los Angeles, California. Um, born and raised. Go Dodgers. Um, and um, I kind of fell into behavior analysis in my undergrad where I got a paid internship, right? I was working at a humble shoe store at the mall and I was like, all right, like time to actually, you know, get into psychology. Like, what do I want to do? Let me get an internship. And I got a paid internship at a behavioral agency. Um, and I loved it. It was working with kids with autism and it was really cool to see all the effects of of increasing the quality of life of the families. And I was, I was sold. Right. Um, so I finished my undergrad at California state university, Northridge. Um, and 
pursued my master's. Um, but that wasn't sort of what I had in mind. I didn't really actually have a plan past um, an undergrad. Um, and a lot of that had to do with me being a first gen student. Um, I'm also black and Mexican. And I just, I just didn't have that around me when I was um, in my family system. So first gen student and, you know, I had some really amazing faculty that, you know, pushed me to, you know, hey, you should consider a master's program and some graduate students as well. And so I applied to a master's program um, and um, I did a lot of work in functional analysis, um, assessment and treatment of problem behavior, severe problem behavior and graduated and now I am in a PhD program. That is so cool. You said South Florida. Yes. Where's, I, where's the University of South Florida located? I'm still learning geography down here. Is that Tampa? The it, Tampa. No, we're not the Gators. The Bulls. Oh. Go Bulls. Go Bulls. Oh, you said that. <laughs> oh. Okay. Um, no, it's in Tampa, Florida, which is on the west coast of Florida, the Bay. So I'm in Orlando, which is... Okay, you're not too far. No, not at all. So (laughs) Tampa's a nice area, though. I like that. That's cool. Did you... And did you say you wound up over here for school? Was that what brought you over here? Yeah. So when I was applying to doctorate programs, um, I was really interested in teaching and research. And USF has... um, a good, a good program that allows you to get both of those experiences. Um, and I was also really interested in working with my current mentor, who is Dr. Sarah Bloom. She's wonderful. Um, she does research in areas that I'm interested in. So, I think Megan Kirby goes to the University of South Florida. Yeah, she does. Oh. Okay. Are you on the same program? No, we're in different programs. Okay. I'm making all these connections now. <laughs> yeah, no. My Megan program is... A psychology program. Megan is part of like a, a dip, right. it's not behavior analytics. Yes. No. I'm going to text her after this. <laughs> yeah, I'm in the applied behavior analysis program. That's so, so um, and I'm working with Dr. Sarah Bloom, and I'm actually one of the first like, black students in the PhD program. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. I think. I bring a lot of um, interesting ideas and different. So, yeah, it's a great program. Okay, hang on. Alan, time out for a second, too. Um, did we tell Marlisha, did we tell you that you can edit anything at any point in time, too? Did we tell her that? Oh, no. 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 Okay. Just in case, because there are times where I'm like, oh, I don't know if I should ask this question or not. You can go back and you can say, hey, we'll say, Alan, take this part out. Or if you say something that you wish you would have reworded a different way, we can just edit that so that's why you know alan's hanging out there so um, okay no that's good to know. <laughs> well, right well i was gonna ask i was gonna ask if you all wanted to talk about the differences in like education as far as like phd programs because denisha you've talked about your experience it with that versus mm-hmm. i don't know marlisha what your experience was like applying or if you had to interview or anything like that and if we i, I don't know if you all want to talk about uh, i don't know i don't know marlisha you don't want to talk about experiences of the program or we could just get into the CE um, stuff that's fine too I mean what do you mean by experiences my like, experiences which I, I talked about on the show of, of pulling out of a PhD program and just like issues with 
culture and people not being interested in diversity and stuff like that. And, um, and like the, the people that make the decisions or whatever, really deciding what the heck they care about, um, which is not the topics that I care about. So I don't know. Is that where you were really, is that where you were getting at Aaron? Like any, yeah. Any- yeah. Cause I try to correlate if, if there's something that you've mentioned on the show and it's like potentially contrasting or similar to, to, to see what that is. I don't know. That could be out of the scope of what we're talking about here too. Cause I have a tendency to go off on tangents and, um, this is a CE. And so, you know, this is, so we should probably table that. That would be a good episode though, to have in higher well, education. Graduates. And yes, I can do a separate job. one once I graduate. I, I would, I wouldn't mind doing something like that. And we All can right. talk openly we'll why, you know, you know, we can talk openly at that point in time why people aren't able to. All right, there we go. You know, share That's it. why I was like the question Thank these you. things too. It's like, should we talk about this or is there a point in time when we should? So, all right. We'll definitely have her back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Denise. We, <laughs> we can time do back we, in. Do we want to go or, back and talk about, we didn't get to what led you to want to like incorporate research and culture inside of you. And, and we didn't get to the part where we were talking about um, incorporating culture and diversity inside your research just yet, right? So we can pick okay. up there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sounds good. Perfect. All righty. So, Alan, we're rolling. Um, so, Marlisha, one of the things that, you know, really kind of like led me to you was just the fact that not only were you talking about your experimental work, but there was this prevalent cultural piece. And that's something that I hadn't seen in the field, like being very strategic. Um, or I would say, I won't say I've never seen it, but just not in a way that we're doing it often and not that it's a a requirement for us to do. And so when you were speaking specifically to um, or with the specific culture, I just thought that that was something, you know, one, that was dynamic and two, that was necessary for the rest of us to kind of take heed to. You talked to our listeners a little bit about what led you to one, do the research, but also incorporate culture and diversity in the research that you do? Yeah. So much like your experience, I think when I was in my master's program, I didn't have a ton of contact with research related to culture and diversity. And um, when I started working with my advisor, Dr. Sarah Williams, she does research. Her background is in um, research related to cultural and linguistic diversity, assessment and treatment of problem behavior. Um, she's got a long list of things that she, you know, um, is an expert in. Um, but I think I just hadn't had an example of how to apply behavior analysis in that way. And I think once I saw some more examples, I'm like, wow, this is a problem, you know, that I see in my environment, but I hadn't put together working in behavior analysis and being able to do that as well, like alter things with behavior analysis. Um, So um, I think just reading her research and being around my colleagues, I had some amazing colleagues in my lab, Dr. Anna Garcia, and some other ones who have graduated and they were all doing research in this area and I was really happy to sort of be taken under their wing and get the experience of of seeing how you can use behavior analysis in culture and linguistic diversity. It's also reading research related to disparities um, and I was like wow like there's a, a huge gap in disparities between um, certain groups of people in comparison to white 
um, their white counterparts. And so I've always been kind of a person that like when they see injustices like or inequities, like I I want to fix and I want to help. Um, and so I just, I think having all the pieces of my, you know, my advisor, my colleagues and the research, I was able to sort of help in that area. Very cool. So you mentioned um, disparities um, just a minute ago. Is there some that you can uh, tact for or label for some of our listeners? What are some disparities that exist within the field? Yeah, so there's disparities between um, as a whole in the mental health and healthcare field with certain populations. And uh, when we talk about the study later, I'll talk about in relation to the Latinx population, there's disparities that exist. And that also includes behavior analysis. Um, and there's even more disparities uh, when, you, when you're talking about Latinx children with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, so, Sorry, can we stop? Lost my train of thought. <laughs> You're good. Can you ask me the question one more time? Um, yeah. <laughs> so I was hey, just wondering. I, did it. <laughs> I was like, where am I going with this? They're everywhere. Which, where do you want me to start? Which population? <laughs> right. No. Um, you just mentioned, um, you know, treatment disparities as you were talking. So I was just wondering if there were a few that came to mind. And I think you, obviously you're gonna talk more about them when we get into the CE portion, but if, you know, if there's anything that's sitting right there on the top of your brain right now that you wanna share. Feel okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so as I said, I was reading research related to disparities and I noticed that there were a lot of disparities between diverse populations and their white counterparts. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more, particularly about the Latinx uh, population. Um, and then also there's diagnosis disparities, and these disparities contribute to, um, you know, treatment adherence, um, affecting treatment adherence and quality of the services. And so um, those were sort of some of the disparities that I was reading about. Yeah. So do we want to go ahead and get right on into it? Erin, did you have anything you wanted to add before we get into Marlisha's research? No, it just, I, I don't know. I was sitting here thinking you said diagnosis disparities. Um, and I teach an undergrad class on uh, uh, autism spectrum disorders. And I, when it was in person, it's online right now, but when it was in person, I would have them watch the documentary Refrigerator Mothers because um, that's what... Uh, um, I don't know, that's what parents were termed. It was the, you know, autism historically was the cause of, of uh, cold parent, cold mothering technically. Um, but I remember there being, um, uh, uh, there were a couple different vignettes, storylines in there and all of them were white except for one. And uh, they refused to give that individual the uh, diagnosis of autism and the mom was just on there crying saying, you know, I can't even, um, I can't even be a refrigerator mother you know, at this point. And so it's wow. like, you don't, you don't write, you don't re realize it's like that hits. And it's like, I can't even get this <laughs> much less any sort of help that, you know, my child needs. And um, I, I just, I think that we often overlook the, the diagnosis disparities, like you're saying, we can easily see other things. Um, 
but I think that that one, I don't know. I was just processing all of that. Was it a miss? I'm just curious, Aaron, because um, I have not seen that. Was it a misdiagnosis? Because I know the, you know, our research says that's often what happens is uh, black boys in particular get diagnosed um, with, you know, having ODD or ADHD versus mm -hmm. um, autism spectrum. But ODD is like really prevalent, like the the full out. Uh, right. Our, con our conduct disorder as well. Um, and so I was just wondering if there was any misdiagnosis present or there just was no pres no diagnosis at all. Um, no, I think what, and if I recall, right, I'd have to go back and, and rewatch, but if I recall, um, historically autism was known to be a middle-class white, right. um, disorder. And so they were saying that, oh, this doesn't happen to this group of people. Um, you have to meet this certain criteria in order to get that diagnosis, so to speak. So, which was white, um, middle -class. right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, I, think you, I don't know. I just had me thinking. I think it's also important to talk about the diagnosis delay, especially when we're talking about behavior analytic um, services is because like if there's already a delay in certain groups getting diagnosed, that just like limits the amount of time that we have to, you know, catch kids up. We're always about early intervention and getting the skills in the repertoire so they can, you know, not be distinguishable from their peers potentially. And, you know, if there's a delay in diverse groups, we need to make sure that all of the, you know, procedures, assessments, treatments are culturally adapted um, and are effective. Is there is there any connection, and I'm assuming there is, but with like socioeconomic status and accessibility for like healthcare and things like that? Because I I remember early intervention or you know home based services when I used to be in that realm. Um, individual it was mostly Medicaid based services, but anybody who had private insurance that could afford to go to John Hopkins or um, it was Charlottesville, so University of Virginia, to get that diagnosis, they were. Medicaid had this massive long wait list. And so it was years before um, individuals, you know, were, were getting diagnosed. But if I can think back to the younger clients that I had, and I worked in a very Northern Virginia. Um, so I, I would say it was even distribution in terms of race. But if I had thought about the younger clients, they were majority white. And then the older clients that I would have, there was a, there was an age difference there. Yeah, it's definitely social economic status. It's access to healthcare. Um, it's transportation to those places. It's all of those things. Um, it's also um, language barriers, um, immigration status. Like if you're undocumented, you might not feel comfortable going to see a doctor. Um, and I think that's something to keep in, in mind as behavior analysts too, because we are kind of affiliated with the government sometimes in people's eyes. Um, so, um, yeah, all of those things can contribute to disparities. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to step on your toes, Marlisha, because if this is in your presentation, I'm sorry. Um, but we're on the topic of, you know, disparities. And one of the things that when, you know, I present at, at certain places and I'm talking about treatment disparities within the field is just like remembering that, I think I said on the last show too, like this is, and we're not on this island where life doesn't happen you know, inside of it. And so meaning that all the disparities that we see outside are literally within our field. And so Marlisha mentioned the the larger field of medical um, or even mental health. And, you know, we know that 
these disparities exist. Racial ethnic minorities receive like lower quality, lower intensity healthcare services than their white counterparts, but that also happens within our field too. African-American, Latinx children, um, they receive that delay, right? Um, and they receive fewer ASD services. And just knowing those things uh, occur. And also like Aaron, you mentioned the socioeconomic status, like, yeah, that's happening. And they're also receiving less hours um, you know, within our field too. And, and just knowing that these treatment disparities exist really helps us. I think when it comes to determining like what happens when we set up our own services with this new family. Um, and so I'll let you go into all of that later. Like I said, I don't want to step on your toes, but the, the disparity conversation is one that um, is necessary, especially right now when we're in this midst of COVID-19. We need to be talking about the disparities that are happening as we're pushing towards telehealth. Not all of our families are opting into telehealth. What's the reason behind that? You know, you saying we say that, you know, you have to have internet um, that has a speed of whatever. And then you also have to have access to a computer and you have to have access to, you know, these other reinforcers and things like that. Who is being left out of this conversation? And if they are being left out, are we making room for that? And what are we doing from an organizational standpoint? So. I think that's that's perfect to add because there's a lot of information being put out about telehealth right now. And Denisha, if you've taught me anything, it's that it does not matter what you're talking about, but there needs to be this lens that you're viewing um, through those, what you're saying, disparities. And how are we talking about that while addressing that? So when you're giving your beautiful presentation on how to administer telehealth, how are you talking about the potential barriers or how are you leaving other people out of this and how are you how are you dealing with that what are you doing to address that so i don't know that's the lesson you've taught me <laughs> and it's definitely gonna need to come up because yeah we've definitely seen so many conversations around telehealth and i've seen it because you know i have my own organization and talking to families and figuring out what we can do to to help them during this time too and, it, and it's tough but that is the responsibility that you hold as Definitely. a person in a position of power. So, okay, sorry, tangent, let's go. <laughs> Can I write that down as a rant? I've lost Yeah, of course. <laughs> Number one. Sticky note. Aaron tracks my find it. ranting behavior each show. So. <laughs> I think I'm going sounds, down to one. But that sounds like another whole podcast show. Like, I think there's a lot that you could, you, not show, but an episode. Um, I think you could definitely bring those things up. I think it's really important. For sure. Sounds like a good one. Maybe next week. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we don't want to put that in the show too. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. So Marlisha, we asked you here today so you can talk to us, you know, about pyramidal training with Latinx families. And so, you know, we will let you get to that. I do want to say before we get started for our listeners who are wanting CE credits, this is a CE event. Therefore, throughout Marlisha's presentation, we will stop every once in a while to present a new buzzword. You have to write this down and submit it to us in order to collect CE credits. So without further ado, let's get started. Yeah, so I'm really excited um, to be talking about this study. It's been in the works um, since I met you, Denisha, and I'm working on the study. It's titled Using Pyramidal Training to Teach uh, Behavior Analytic Procedures to Latinx Families. Um, and I am also working on the study, I should say, with the co-authors, um, my advisor, Dr. Sarah Bloom and um, Dr. Anna Garcia. 
Um, so we talked, we touched on a lot of the disparities uh, related to diverse populations. Um, um, but in particular, since my study works with Latinx populations, um, they have higher disparity rates in the mental health and healthcare field. Um, and like I said, those disparities are even greater among uh, Latinx children with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, so in the literature, in other fields, um, one way that they have reduced disparities is by making sure that diverse populations have equal access to services and receive the best possible outcomes. Um, and they've done that by, one of the ways that they've done that is by aligning cultural values and services. And this is not something that, I think this is something that we're beginning to talk about in behavior analysis, but um, maybe don't have a ton of examples just yet. Um, there is literature out there. But for us, um, we, and oh, I should also state that um, when you're aligning if you're not aligning uh, cultural values and services, one thing that uh, the research will say is that um, it may affect treatment adherence by the families and um, the quality outcomes. So parents reported um, less quality services just by not considering cultural values. Um, so it's really important. Um, and even though we are sort of in the beginning of talking about how to do this, I think it would be really cool in research for us to start doing these things. So like I said, um, my colleagues and I uh, began the study. And one thing that we did was to start looking, start looking at cultural values. And one of those cultural values that's commonly fo followed by um, the Latinx population and other cultural groups, sim similar um, cultural values is familismo. And that is just um, kind of like collective, uh, collectivism and the togetherness and taking care of not just your the nuclear family, but the extended family as well. Um, also the preference for childcare to be done by the family and not outside um, individuals. Um, finances, all of those things are done collectively with the family. Um, and so we really looked at that cultural value and my advisor had previously done a study on pyramidal training, which is a, a tiered training system where you would train, let's say, the, the teacher at the school and then the teacher would train all of the different aides. Um, and that's a great tiered system in like a school setting. But then we started thinking about cultural values and we're like, wow, well, there's also kind of like a tiered system within a family. So why couldn't we use this same type of um, training to in, a, in a, a different family system? And so that's really, I think the key piece about this study is we are altering the way that we're doing parent training to fit the family system rather than going in and saying like, okay, well, we're going to be the experts and come in and train you. And I think something that's really cool about this study is it mitigates um, some other things that could be related to quality. So like maybe the family members are distrustful of, you know, someone coming into their home, or maybe there's a family member that works late um, till 10 p.m. and a behavior analyst can't stay there um, until 10 p.m. to train, you know, the mom or the dad or uh, any other caregiver or family member. And so I think if you're able to train one family member and then that family members trained on how to do how to train others that could help in family systems that look different you know 
Um, so for our study, our population are um, Latinx families. And we didn't just go out and say, okay, every Latinx family that, you know, called us, we would work with them. We also had a criteria, like they needed to also follow the cultural value. Because with this research, one thing we don't want to happen is for people to read this research and say, okay, whenever I get a Latinx family, like this is what I'm going to do. So we really asked questions about how the families worked and if they followed the cultural value. Um, and then we included them in the study. And they needed to have uh, a minimum of, of about um, two to three other family members. Um, so then that's what we did. We went in and we did an assessment on problem behavior. And we um, then identified a treatment for um, them to implement. I have a question, Marlisha. Um, because especially when talking about like cultural variables and just thinking about, you mentioned distrust, um, and like the values there, was there something or, uh, a procedure that you all made sure to put in, or I don't know, how, how did you actually approach these families in a way that was in alignment with, you know, what they already cared about and also to kind of mitigate the, the distrust that might've been present? for these families, mistrust that comes with, you know, um, engaging in uh, formal research or anything like that. Was that present in your study at all? Did you, is that something that you had to consider or think about prior to um, recruiting these families? Yeah, I think we definitely considered um, like language and made sure we had translators and um, we asked for preference of how they would like services. We definitely went in, we had a lot of conversations. I think, you know, building rapport and letting them know exactly what we were going to be doing and if they felt comfortable. And really it was, it was a collaboration between us and the family. I think that's the most important part. Um, and just identifying if there are any specific things within the family that like rules, cultural values and things like that we should be following. Um, and most of the families were amazing. Well, not most, all, all the families are amazing and um, are really open and are excited to have these conversations, you know? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's study. Um, so yeah, we identified um, just a treatment and then we trained the, the, a family member how to teach other family members. And yeah. So is that, um, so I know that you said you trained, are you able to talk a little bit about, um, you know, like the results so far? Like what have you been able to, to see from the study? Anything that could be useful for individuals um, who are considering? what you're presenting? Um, so we have two data sets complete and one currently in progress. Um, I think I think some things to consider is just like the process. Um, and some, so for example, like we're taking demographic data. I think that's really important to talk about. Um, we're talking about, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think without saying too much about the study before it's published. <laughs> um, okay, I, I would say, see, this is the hard thing, is like, 
the procedures are effective, right? Like we're training them and they're able to implement the skills. And I think the big thing in the paper that we're going to be highlighting is just our process. And so I think that is the most important thing to highlight is how we went about um, our training with the families and how it was a collaborative process. And we asked things related to their culture and we asked, um, we checked in with them along the way to make sure all the decisions that we made um, were things that they were, they were good with. Um, and like I said, I, I think this is a good model. It doesn't have to be used with all Latinx families, but I think it's a good model to start thinking about when we're working with different family systems um, to think about our procedures and not just kind of have a one size fits all, a cookie cutter way of doing things. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned that, you know, of course you, you all ask questions. Um, can you talk about how you decided, like what these questions were or, um, you know, what was important in terms of, I know you asked about cultural values and making sure that, you know, you all were in alignment with, with that, but were there any other type of questions that you, you all as the investigators felt were important to ask the family from the outside? Um, I think we asked a lot of questions related to language, like who felt comfortable um, being trained in what language. So, and that differed across families. Um, so some family members were like, I would like parent training to be done in Spanish, but I want all the services with my child to be done in English. Um, and so we made sure that we had materials prepped for both languages and we made sure that we had staff for um, both languages. Um, just preference of communication. Um, we considered location of where the research was done. So some families were not able um, to come to the school for research. We went to their homes. Um, we scheduled around times that were convenient for them. Um, and all of those things I think are really important to um, consider. I'm hearing a lot of flexibility in that. <laughs> yeah, for trying to practice flexibility, right? <laughs> I think when it comes to to research, like I'm really glad that you're conducting research in this way, because what stands out to me, um, you know, being being a doctoral student and um, conducting research myself is um, the issue that a lot of people have is like experimental control and how are you controlling for all the variables and all this stuff. And I want to just like sh shake people sometimes and be like, but that that doesn't always translate to the real world. Like what you all are putting forward is. Um, is it, you're focused more on the process, right? Is what is what you were saying? Is um, I, I I don't know. It's not necessarily how do we control the entire environment to make sure that our independent variable is the cause of the change and the dependent variable. More or less, like how are we treating people? You know, and and how do you behaviorally define that? Or um, I don't know. It's just I, I think there's so much value in that, and and oftentimes that um, that gets pushed to the side and not, and not viewed as, as important. Am I, am I making sense? <laughs> Absolutely. You're making total okay. sense. And I think the point that I have is like, I think when it comes to cultural variables, they're very difficult to identify and measure. And I think as behavior analysts, that's very scary. Um, for example, like cultural variables, variables are private events. So like, um, it's hard to just identify like, hey, I follow that cultural variable. Like as I was reading a lot of the research from different cultures, I was like, oh, hey, yeah, I totally do that. My family does that. But that's not something that I can just tap. 
Um, and I think that's what makes it so hard for behavior analysts. It's not necessarily observable. You may have to ask a lot of questions. You might have to have um, some, you know, knowledge in other areas, other fields about different groups in order to ask the correct questions to get um, the information that you need to provide effective services. And I think it would be super useful in behavior analysis. I actually saw this um, presentation at WIBA last year, Patricia Wright, I think her name was, oh, yeah. and she mm -hmm. talked about um, how sometimes as behavior analysts, we look at things through a pinhole. And if we are to sort of, if we were to widen the way that we look at, at things and behavior and measuring things, that that would be helpful in capturing some of the cultural variables that we may not be doing in research or looking at in research. I like what you said there about, um, you know, needing to pinpoint just a little bit more. I will tell you, you know, all for as long as I've been a behavior analyst, um, I've asked the question very blanketly at first, right? Are there any cultural variables that are there any like cultural practices that you think that I should you, we should be aware of? And it doesn't matter what culture. Everyone always says no, no, no. Why is very it's like it's not cultural it's in, it's unique it's independent it's mine like and so then you start asking oh okay well i noticed that you asked for me to take my shoes off when i came in the door is that something that's important to you oh i noticed that you all sit at the table together you know at 6 p.m and gather i noticed that you said a prayer like you know and then just being able to say like this is the behavioral things that i've noticed like what else what else can we you know say is important to you that kind of gets you thinking about oh yeah like my family we have our own cultural unit. We do do these things. This is important to us as a whole. Um, and so just asking that blanket statement, and I always start there, but I, you know, move out to, you know, the, the smaller, more uh, tangible and measurable things. But, um, but just leaving it there, you would get, at least me personally, I would get nothing. I would literally have everyone telling me that they have no culture at all to even consider. And it's like, oh yeah, but you want me, you want your child to address me as Miss Denisha, that's a cultural, you know what I mean? That's, that's a, that's a value to you. Um, and so we can consider that, um, as well. So, yeah, I, I like yeah. that you brought up that at least having some type of information or being able to, ha uh, ask a little bit more in detail is going to be useful in determining what are some of these cultural components. Absolutely. Like I, like if you ask me about things in my own culture, like I'd probably be able to identify them, but I can't just like give you a list <laughs> at all. You know, it's just stuff that I do. So right. I think another another area just related to research in general is I've heard a lot about, you know, like what's the difference between culture and preference. Um, and I think that's a really important distinction to sort of make when we're talking about research. Because I think when we're talking about culture, like culture is like, it's cultural selectionism, you know, like that behavior might be in that family system's repertoire, because at, at one time, or currently, it was for the survival of, you know, their family. And that's very different from preference. And it doesn't mean it can't overlap. But I think it's different than different than just, hey, I like to do this, you know, this is something that is a reinforcer because it is. Um, yeah. And in research, they're, they're finding that it actually will alter, you know, it has an effect, like cultural preference has an effect. 
Awesome. You mentioned um, something else though, Marlisha, earlier you were talking about um, checking in with your families, like as you were doing the, um, during the, doing the study. And can you talk to us a little bit more about like how these check-ins went? Were there things that you, you had to consider as the speaker um, and your families being the listener? Um, I don't know, just things that came up with that check-in. Cause obviously when we're talking about verbal behavior, the way that we um, all communicate might be different. You know, there are different things that are reinforced based on your culture. Like, were there any considerations for that at all? And just how was the process of check-ins in general? Yeah, so we would definitely check in just throughout, especially when we're changing like phases or we're going into doing something new. Um, so for example, um, after we did assessments, we would pick a treatment. And so we would have a conversation and talk about some options and talk about some things that are really important for them. Um, so maybe following directions and a certain number of directions was really important. Um, let's say if they have escape maintained behavior and we were going to be teaching them how to follow instructions. So it's just checking in and like, do these materials work, right? Um, is this something that you think that you would use in your home? Um, and other small things is just when you're running research or when you're conducting research, like considering the number of days you're there is really important. Like we were working with some older family members, like grandma and grandpa and like aunts and uncles. And you know, you know, running more than one session during the week was not something that they could do. And so you just, I think checking in and asking all of those things are really important. We talk a lot about, you know, our own individual biases and, and how they impact our work. And as you're talking, Marlisha, and I'm just hearing all this flexibility, all this, um, I guess, just awareness of differences between, you know, yourself and the families that you serve or just whatever, because we all have differences between us. I'm wondering how that um, might look different if as an individual, I have not addressed, you know, differences, cultural differences. I'm not aware of my own. I'm not aware of yours either. Um, how that might impact the way that I interact with individuals that are different from me. Um, that's a really good question. Um, I would love to see more research in that area. I think I find, I find as a person of color, when I'm interacting with other families of, of color, like I interact in a way that's a little bit different. And I think that's because, um, you know, we may share a lot of similarities, but I don't really know how to sometimes put that into a research study. Like, I don't know how to define that and I don't know how to come up with steps with that. And I think that's why we may have this gap in the literature as well. Um, and so I think for people who are interested in doing research in this topic, that's something to consider, you know, what the, clinician or the BCBA or the researcher, like their race, ethnicity, and the differences in the families that they're providing services. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think there's, uh, this is, again, this is the, the challenge with this is like, yes, when you go into a family's home, we experience these, we all have bias, we all have implicit attitudes, which then can impact our, our behavior. Right. Um, but when we go to measure these things, like we just, um, you know, we're, 
we're going to be doing a study with the the um, IAT. There's the IRAP that's out there that measures like um, implicit relations, uh, and it's measuring response latency. And you're putting people into these contrived situations where they're going to measure something. So if you've ever done like the project, the um, project implicit, the Harvard um, studies online, uh, it's very controlled, right? And it's like, does that then translate? But how do you know if it translates? Like, that's what I want to know is, um, you know, and I think the idea is, is that if it's implicit and it's immediate, then that doesn't, I think in theory, it doesn't change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think what then does change is your behavior in that moment, not necessarily your, your very immediate thoughts that you have. Does that make oh, sense? Oh, yeah. No, I think you know that, sense. right? Yeah, yeah, from yeah. our research. Um, but that's that's a good point. And, and we were talking about that last time when we had Dr. Uh, Ratliff on the show is, um, mm-hmm. you know, how do we take it from, one, we all have these implicit biases to like, this is the actual behaviors that we're engaging in and how and how do we see that overlap? Um, yeah, there's just so much room for that. And, uh, and I think that's right, right what the researchers are going to continue to try to figure out the answer to that question. Like, mm-hmm. how does it move from this quick, immediate thought to now I'm engaging in this um, behavior? And I think what we already have from the research from behavioral research is that, you know, our mind makes those associations really quickly, you know, in less than 500 milliseconds, we're able to pinpoint who you are to, you know, and just add a discriminatory response um, in less than like one seventh of a second. Um, And I'll put that research in the show notes because I have it somewhere, but yeah. But, but then how do, how do we measure that after that? Like what's the, what's the behavioral response? from this implicit response that's happening to us. Yeah. I don't know if we can control, you know, private events, but we can control, you know, public events. And I think a lot of that can um, be done through like education. Like there should be classes related to talking about these disparities and, you know, ways to work with different families. Um, So my, my dissertation is, related to something very different, but I read a lot of research related to, um, like, sexual harassment training, Mm -hmm. and they do a lot of, like, bystander intervention trainings and putting them in situations, kind of like in situ training, like, Mm -hmm. they'll set up opportunities for something to happen and, and, you know, have people intervene or respond differently, so those could be ways that research could go. I just went and grabbed a book because I was reading. Um, I'm creating a presentation for class on implicit bias and cultural humility. Um, and RFT, like if there's ever a direction that I think, you know, this research is going to go, it's going to be an RFT. And I didn't realize it, but there's, um, I don't know if it's REC or if they go by REC, um, but it's the relational elaboration and coherence model. And essentially there it's, I'm going to butcher this. I know I am, but there's two components where you're saying you have brief, immediate relational responses, which are those immediate thoughts that you have. So your implicit attitude, your implicit bias, but then you have these extended and elaborate, elaborated relational responses. So the example that they gave in this book chapter was if you're going to find your seat on a plane and there are only two seats left open and there's a person that is the same um, race and ethnicity as you, 
or and in this case the example was a, a white irish uh, male or something like that so that's who you have the option to sit by or a middle eastern male your automatic thought is middle eastern men are violent or they're terrorists or something like that like that is your immediate thought but that extended elaborate one is like wait a minute i know this isn't the case and then you go through this whole complex thing of like so the private events can still be like this Conf <laughs> conflict that you're having and then between that conflict you're then choosing your be choosing what you do right so that like you're saying really like that overt behavior is can you can control that but they're they're saying you're trying to find coherence within that relational network like there's got to be some coherence and it's that battle between those two essentially i don't know i don't know anything i may have just butchered it but it makes sense <laughs> when i kind of say it out loud but i think like you're saying it's just we are just starting to understand stuff like that and it's going to be so important for treatment in the way that you're saying um you know when we finally can absolutely So let's see. You know what? This is a good area. Let's pause. Yes. I forgot the word. <laughs> I have so my timer set too. I know. I always do this. Um, it's only our second one, but <laughs> the first buzzword for tonight is Nipsey Hustle. And I chose this one because today uh, marks Nipsey's, um, you know, anniversary of his passing uh, last year, which was a big blow to uh, my community, myself too, who I, you know, admire Nipsey Hussle for his ambition, his drive, and the marathon continues um, still on to this day for those who followed, you know, his, his artistry and just his life's work. But uh, do you want to talk a little bit about where you're from, Marlisha? Because that's actually how I got the first buzzword today, because you both are from the same place. Oh, yeah? I did not know you were from L.A. Yep. That's exciting. Um, yeah, so I'm originally from Los Angeles. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, if people are familiar with L.A. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I went to school in the Valley, and my parents, my mom's originally from Alabama, and she moved to California. And my dad is originally from California in a pretty rough neighborhood. So, yeah, that's where I'm from. Awesome. All right. Um, and so, you know, we want to continue rolling into the CE component and, you know, we'll let you pick up Marlisha with whatever else you have that you want to present to our listeners. Um. I think it would be cool to talk about some ways um, if people are interested in doing research in culture and diversity, just some considerations um, and changes that we could make in research. Um, one thing that I think it's really important that we should be doing that is not a requirement currently um, is reporting demographics of participants. Um, currently, we don't report race, ethnicity, gender, you know, sexual orientation, any of those things. And that is something that's important because if people might be just assuming, you know, that everybody's all white. And if there's differences in the effectiveness of 
things. We don't know if it's within certain communities. Um, so I think that's really important. And I also have been reading a lot of literature outside of behavior analysis, and I thought this was very interesting. But in some fields, they also report aspects of the researcher or the clinician. And so they'll report whether they have, um, you know, have any training related to culture and diversity and sometimes center themselves within the research study. Um, and I think that's something that's really, really important and kind of interesting as well. I, I love when I see um, research written from that lens, uh, the two different lenses that you just named. One, the personal lens, especially when people are talking about, you know, this was important for me to study. So for example, we talked about like how there might be differences when you work with families that look like you and to be able to actually put that in the literature. Um, but then also on the other side of that with the training component, being able to talk about what you did to prepare yourself for this study in the first place or like what yeah. outside information or training that you've received outside of it. I just thought it was fun to talk about this specific hot topic. You know what I mean? And so I think that that would be useful for listeners to, to hear about. I think behavior analysis is cool because we know that it applies in so many different settings and people that have, you know, a passion or a thought to do something might be able to try to apply the science in that way. But when we're seeing academic research, especially when it's related to culture and diversity, especially when it's related to a field that primarily uh, props up people who are white to speak about culture and diversity, let us know, like, you know, where you come from, who trained you, how do you know, how do you know what you know? Um, and I think that's going to be useful information um, in particular. Yeah. How I'll, say, they, I'll stop there. <laughs> no, in the, in the art, like, how was that presented? So in the article, did it give like a, a background of the researcher or how, how do they present yeah. that? It was just like a few sentences, like as you would for participant information. It was like, and the researcher, you know, has published research in blah area, or the researcher was, you know, race, ethnicity, you know, but still did some training, like actually provided some information about um, the researcher. And I have never seen that in behavior analysis. That doesn't mean it's not there, but that's not something that I've commonly seen. And I thought that was a great way. Like, I think especially in the time when we're talking a lot about diversity, it's important to center yourself in the conversation and not speak for all groups or, you know what I mean? So I don't know. I thought that was very cool. Yeah. And it also lets us know about our own specs in our eye. I've used that terminology or that phrase on here before. Um, being able to at least center that component because we all have our own stuff and our own work to do, but especially when it's like, you know, and these are my own, this is my own stuff. And I'm relating this to this work in this, in this type of way. I think it just gives a, a larger picture of who we're learning from. Yeah. yeah. I think it's so also, also, oh, go ahead. I think it's also important to be bringing in research from other fields. I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel at all. Not at all. I'm sure there's innovative things that can come out of you know, us going to different topics, but I don't think we need to reinvent as much as we think we do. And I think we need to borrow some things that have been effective in other fields. Um, you know, we haven't been a around as long, as long as other fields and they have, you know, a lot of research. 
So I think, you know, teaming up with people outside of our area is really important. Yes. Denisha, you look like you wanted to say something. I know. I was like, you were really excited. No, we, you know, hey, I, I definitely agree. I was about to start clapping my hands. We do not know everything. Um, which is also why, you know, Aaron and I teamed up with social psychologists and uh, we're going to be doing this implicit bias study soon. Moving outside of the field, but no, uh, you know, behavior analysis, that's just very weird to me. Like when I hear behavior analysts that don't consider us to be part of the psychology field, odd to me, but, um, you know, we just, we don't know every single thing. And there's, there is a lot to learn from other types of psychology workers or helping professions and like social workers and stuff like that. And we just really need to be able to um, allow ourselves to do that. So we don't have to keep talking about that. I mean, talking about the same question that's been delved in by, you know, delved into by other fields for centuries. Well, not centuries, sorry, decades. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We need to, to not start over. We don't have time to start over. Megan said that on our show too, like, right? Like Mm -hmm. we don't have time to just be starting over and talking about the same old thing. I do believe that conceptual work is important. I'll still stand on that hill, but um, we definitely shouldn't be spending all our time just trying to even figure out, well, what is the, you know, correct way to describe this thing? And I know that, you know, obviously behavioral definitions matter to us, but um, sometimes we really get caught up. We really do. And it's yeah, and it, doing the work. Yeah, it does. And if you read, so if you read our ethics code too, um, there's language in there that, so I teach an ethics course and I'll, I'll have the students stop and I'll say, read, read this language. I'll take it out of the context of the ethics code and I'll say, read this. And I was like, what are some words that come to your, to mind? And, um, like arrogant, better than like all of these things are what come through the chat box. And it's saying, you know, we need to put behavior analysis above all other forms of this, this, and this. And, and it essentially, I don't know, it just, it, it, you know, our own ethics code is telling us um, in so many words that to not listen to others or that ours is more important. And, and to me, that's not collaborative in any way. Right. Unfortunately, our ish does stink. So, you know, Denisha, I thought you brought up another point that I I really wanted to talk about is I think it's great that we're getting all these call to action and conceptual papers and having the conversation, but I would really like to see more experimental work published because that is what's going to help the families that we're servicing. Like we need procedures to follow um, and well-tested out procedures. So that's what I would like to see. I would like to see culture as the, the independent variable. That's the thing. Um, so. I definitely, you know, I, I hear that and I agree. I, uh, and I hope that, you know, the folks who have been learning from, you know, people that are more so conceptual based and that has been myself this entire time so far, um, are learning and applying that for the people that are on the EAB side. Like if we're going to talk about doing your own type of work and, you know, acknowledging yourself, that helps the EAB side. And and that's why I do think both are important. But like I said earlier, to not to contradict what I said or or what you just said is that, you know, we can't get, we can't just stay there. We can't get caught up in just only, you know, try to figure out who sounds the smartest 
talking about this particular topic. It's like, what are you going to do about it? Like, it's time. And like you said, Marlisha, we need procedures and we need things that are going to impact the actual work that we do. For sure. Oh, you know what? Let's stop and let me give the second buzzword. <laughs> the second buzzword is bull. Marlisha, do you want to talk about the bull? You talked about it a little bit earlier. <laughs> yes, the mascot for USF, University of South Florida, is the bulls. Go bulls. Yay. In Tampa, Florida. A, Tampa, Florida. Awesome. It's a fun city. Um, I've never been to Tampa, actually. I need to go. Fun. A lot of breweries and outside activities, kayaking and stuff. With all the gators? And the gators. <laughs> I've, I've, actually never... Florida, like... <laughs> <laughs> I've actually haven't seen a gator while I've lived here and I've been here almost three years. I should probably see a gator sometime soon. I think they're myth like mythical creatures that people talk about because <laughs> I haven't seen one either. I'm like, where are these gators you all speak of? I see lizards everywhere. <laughs> lizards everywhere. Yeah, that was a big change for me when I came from LA to Tampa. I'm like, woo, there's a lizard going back and forth. We've got frogs. We've got lots of different types of birds. I didn't know they existed. So I sent my mom a, a text message the other day and um and they live in Virginia and up there there are deer everywhere. Like a oh. dangerous level of like, you know, getting hit by cars and all kinds of stuff. And I sent her a and usually they'd be out in the front yard eating grass or something like that. But I sent her a picture of this crane looking bird that was in our front yard. And I said, when you're not in Virginia anymore, it's like, this is what's in your front yard versus the white tailed deer that, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely had to wait for a peacock to cross the road, that was a new experience coming from the, the city girl. I was like, we're here, we're in Florida. <laughs> oh, that's funny, wow. <laughs> so Aaron, do you, I think I always make you do this. <laughs> do you it's wanna cool. do our homework? Homework, goodness, I don't know. Did, do we have homework? Did we write homework out? We it's did blank. not write homework out, I blanked it. <laughs> Oh, goodness. going to do it on the fly. Let's see. Marlisha, right. do you have any homework that you want to give our guests? We always try to give them a, a homework assignment based on what we talked about for the week. Right. Hmm. Homework. I would say read some literature related to culture and diversity. I think there's a lot out there. There was a special edition of that that has like a nice, a nice grouping of readings. I think starting there. It's really good. Um, yeah. Is that a big yeah. homework assignment? I'm a doctoral student. That's what they, they give us. They give us reading. <laughs> you mentioned an article in the very beginning. I don't I don't know if it's an actual art, but you had said something about taking into consideration the family's values leads to better treatment outcomes or better buy-in. Is there yeah. can you A send that to me because I need to give that to students. Cause when I ask them how to get buy-in from, from parents, they say, show them the data, explain things, talk about, I'm like, has that worked yet at all? Like, <laughs> um, to some degree for some, yes, that might, but, uh, but for a large part, it, it doesn't. And I think this is a huge piece that, that we're missing in our field completely, um, is teaching people how to 
how to talk to others, how to, to learn from others, how to listen. Um, how to not yeah, assume. so I can, I can write down some of the literature that I've read and maybe give it to you all and you can post it or I don't know how that works, but I can, I can send you literature. <laughs> yes, um, we can actually put it on our show notes. So any literature that you reference today, if you, you know, think of it or any, any other thing, like any other um, literature that you think is important that also um, is part of this topic, if you'll send it to us, we'll just go ahead and put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. 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 So awesome. that's your homework, y'all. Y'all need to um, choose one article that will be listed in the show notes and take a gander at it and read it. I like mm. it. Yeah. Okay. So the last buzzword is uppercut. Marlisha, before you go, can you tell us what uppercut means to you? <laughs> Which you already talked about too, but... <laughs> Um, so as a PhD student on my um, very high salary, uh, sometimes I have to uh, cut some costs and do some Groupons. So um, I was looking for ways to stay active and something different to keep me interested because um, I'm usually tired by the time I get to the gym. Um, so I decided to buy a Groupon for a boxing class and I thought it was just going to be, you know, like, you know, you show up to a gym, they have a boxing class, but it it turned out to be um, a legit boxing, you know, training studio um, <laughs> and with a whole ring in the middle of it. So, yes, that's, that's now I am cool. currently boxing. I showed up and, you know, I didn't have it in me to walk out. Like, I'm like, nope, I, I bought it and I walked in. Everyone saw me. So I'm just going to do the best I can. And I ended up loving it. So now I still go. Well, not now, but yeah. I was going consistently. Yeah. Oh man. Are they still doing, um, well, I guess not. They're not doing any like home classes. I feel like that's the thing right now. People are doing like zoom workouts. Yeah. Um, my gym is not doing any zoom workouts or anything, but I've, I've been looking on YouTube a lot and finding some home workouts. Um, and I've been walking around my neighborhood, my neighborhood. I've been walking around and like discovering new things in my neighborhood. So that's been my workout lately. I went, I went running before we recorded this podcast and I said, I would love some data of how many people went out when they're technically not supposed to, but you know, in, enjoyed nature with keeping distance from people. That's great. Versus how many will go back to, you know, a different lifestyle after that because i swear there's 10 times more people out like on the trail or biking or running right now which is great you know i think if there's anything that you can do <laughs> i don't know if that's like in not in alignment with social distancing i don't know i don't get within six feet of anybody else and i don't touch anything so i run and i go home i'd like to see know. data on novel workouts people are trying like i purchased a jump rope i don't know the last time i jump rope like maybe elementary school but like I'm trying all these new things. I went running. I hate running, but I did it because it's important. So like, you know, it's evoking some novel, you know, workout routines yeah. for me. Marlisha, I totally thought about buying a workout, a uh, jump rope today, but only because I saw one of my friends from grad school working out with a jump rope. And I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm trying to find things that like i don't need a lot of equipment for and doesn't take up a lot of space you know so jump rope was cost effective and small and kind of fun and new yeah all right 
Well, thank you so much for being with us today. We're going to go ahead and let this show roll out. Um, and you know, this concludes our show. Thank you all the, to all the listeners for committed to being beautiful humans with us. We'll see you next week. Tune in for the next show. It's Denisha and Aaron. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a pretty easy podcast. So pretty easy podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. In doing that, so, but again, thank you all. For committing to being beautiful humans with us. Tune in for the next show. Hey, it's Denisha and Aaron. I just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a pretty easy podcast. So pretty easy podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. Mm-hmm.